Father, we come now having sung words about Christ, words about our great salvation. We come to his word. We don't come to my word or an opinion or a proof text. We come to the living and enduring word of God. We come to a place of submission to this text, seeking the power of the Spirit, not only to understand it, but to have it driven deep into into our hearts and to change us from the inside out. And so my prayer is the prayer of Paul, that this word of this gospel would not come in word only, but would come in power and in the Holy Spirit and with abundant conviction. Conviction of our sin, of our darkness, but conviction that we have a Savior that is greater than all of our sin. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For our visitors, we do have a bulletin. You can check out the bulletin, and there's an outline in there for you as we go. We'll let this get stabilized before I get going. This doesn't count for my three hours of sermon time right now. So, Let me know if I need to take the microphone off and let it rip without a microphone. Let me know. One of C.S. Lewis's disciples, someone that he had mentored who was really an English expert, a poet, a writer, and a philosopher. His name was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote something that I, I want you to pay particular attention to for just a moment. He wrote that when people don't believe in God, it's not that they don't believe in nothing. It is that they believe in anything. And so we see a world, we see a culture, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe or other places of this world that has moved away from the God of the Bible, but has clearly not moved away from a fascination with the supernatural, with the occult, a fascination with something beyond what we can see and something beyond what we can taste and smell and and touch. A culture that is fascinated, we see with Greek gods, with other universes, with superheroes and witchcraft and the paranormal and all of that. And there's just an exponential increase in movies about this and about and movies about angels and movies 
about demons and the demonic. And while there is very big money spent in Hollywood, focusing on the supernatural darkness, there is a very small true understanding of that supernatural realm. Whether it's the light, or I would say especially the darkness. And so, if we're going to follow human beings in Hollywood, we're never going to reach an accurate understanding of the supernatural world, of the supernatural world of darkness. The only, the only way we're going to understand the supernatural, especially the, the dark demonic realm, is by coming to the word of God and seeing what God says is true. And so I'd like you to take your Bibles, and let's do just that this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to read the entire passage this morning, verses 26 through 39 of Luke chapter 8 as we continue. For visitors, we're going verse by verse through the book of Luke, and we continue now with this probably, we can debate this, but probably the most horrific and intense picture and actually account of demonic possession in all of the word of God ever written. And therefore, one of the most beautiful, miraculous, incredible deliverances that pictures our great salvation in all of the scriptures. It's so wonderful, you guessed it, we're going to do it in two parts. So as not to be here for three hours. For this morning, we're going to read the whole passage, but we're going to look at the miracle of deliverance of the demoniac, a man named Legion. At least that's what the demons called him. We're going to look at verses 26 through 33, and then next week we're going to take, take some real time to reflect on that and to respond to it as we look at verses 34 through 39. So let's just soak it in. Let's read the whole account. Luke chapter 8, and find verse 26. Remember, Jesus, in the context, and the disciples had just braved the storm of the century and have landed on the other side of the sea or of Galilee, of the lake, Gennesaret. We pick it up in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon 
into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Wow. The divine son of God delivers us from the demonic darkness. Praise God that the divine Son of God has delivered us from the demonic darkness. As we tackle this passage, Let's look at the divine Son of God confronting the demonic darkness from four vantage points, from four vantage points that are unpacked in our passage from verses 26 through 33, and then we're going to respond to it today, but we're going to keep it going. We're going to respond and preach one more sermon, see how they responded to this two ways very stark differences in response to this. And then we'll ask ourselves how we're responding to the great deliverer from demonic darkness. So the first vantage point then that will help us reset the context is this. Number one, the first vantage point is this. Notice the determined path the determined path into the demonic darkness. The determined path. Verse 26. 
Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. So in the last account, it was Jesus' idea to get into the boat and take the team into the storm of the century. That was his idea. And they left kind of a very popular, central, Jewish side of the sea, and they were embarking into the darkness, not just the darkness of the storm, but into the darkness of a predominantly Gentile land. They were embarking into the stronghold of the devil himself in the land of the Gerasenes. And in this region, this dark region of the Gentiles, the devil and his demons had a strong foothold. But notice that Jesus Christ is not afraid. Notice that Jesus Christ is determined and there would be opposition, the opposition of the storm to get there. He was determined to sail to the other side into the darkness. And it's no accident because just as they arrived, delayed a little bit by the storm in God's timing, just as they arrive in that shore, they are met by a man possessed by demons on the beach. And this demoniac, this man possessed by many demons, he meets them there. And he doesn't meet him there for a campfire with fish and a nice theological discussion and all of that. No, if you look at the comparison account in Mark and Matthew, this man is on a raging offensive on the beach in attack mode to this boat that's just landed on the beach. A beach attack more scary than Jaws. The very moment the Lord Jesus stepped out of the boat, he shows up. And I think we can see divine sovereignty all over this passage on this meeting in on the beach. And I want us to think about the spiritual implications for these physical miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ are always in all the Gospels, not just in John, but in all the Gospels are always a picture of our great spiritual salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think that Christ came after you and pursued you into the darkness. He came after you into the darkness. This man was locked in darkness. This man possessed by demons, he didn't hop in a boat in his right mind and sail across the sea and find Jesus. Jesus must come after him. And Jesus did, out of great love. Jesus set his love upon, and he traveled through a violent storm, and he went after this man. And it was only, it was for this man that he went. We'll see more that it was even beyond this man. But how do I know it was just for this man? Because right after he deals with this man, look at verse 40. 
And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him. So he leaves this shore, he enters into the storm, he deals with this man. They say, go back, and he says, that was my plan. (laughs) And he goes back, and they're waiting for him. All of this work for this one man, the pursuit of Jesus into the darkness. Jesus pursued this man, and for every person in this room, That God has rescued you. He has delivered you out of the darkness of sin. You have to understand it. It wasn't you. It was God's initiative that began the whole process of your salvation. It wasn't that you sought him that you were saved. It wasn't that you discovered him and you were delivered. It wasn't that you just ran after him and ran after him and he said, okay, I'll redeem you. It wasn't because you chose him that you are clean. It is because Jesus Christ determined to pursue you into the darkness that you stand clean and whole today and in your right, man, in your right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus went after us into the Gentile regions of the darkness. He was not afraid. He was not afraid. He was not afraid of impossible situations. And he brought his power to bear in the redemption of this man. I just think we need to, we could stop and preach a whole sermon on this first point. That God chose us before we ever chose him. That he sought us before we ever sought him. We absolutely had no chance. This man has no chance, you'll see it, apart from the pursuit of a sovereign, loving Lord that plunged him and his fledgling core of the future church into the darkness to rescue those in Gentile regions. It's precisely the confidence that Alex has and Bobby and Danielle and Kai have in the darkness of Austria. Not their ability, but the power of Christ to seek after his people that are there in that valley, still plunged in the darkness. Well, how dark, you keep talking about darkness, how dark was the situation? Are you sure? Maybe he could have, you know, bought a ticket and headed over to Capernaum. Well, that leads us to our second vantage point this morning. That 50-minute marker's not running. That's a bad sign for your success and the picnic to follow, (laughs) especially since I have no watch. The second vantage point, the destructive plans, the destructive plans of the demonic darkness. Again, I, I... Maybe I'm wrong on this, but this is, I'll just say it this way. This is one of the most vivid pictures in the Bible about demonic possession and and the desperate plight of, of every man, woman, and child who is still locked in the clutches of Satan and the devil. One of the most vivid, horrific pictures. I'm, I'm going to try to paint a picture for you of the destructive plans and the desperate plight of the demonic darkness. 
Well, let's notice this man's clothing. Let's start there. Verse 27. And this man had not put on any clothing for a long time. Got it? This man was absolutely naked, ran around naked. The lowest possible place of humiliation, the lowest possible level of slow, dripping torment of the cold and the heat without any sort of mediation. This man was tormented in his nakedness. This man was in a place of humiliation and shame, walking around naked like an animal. We know we can do a biblical theology of nakedness, which is not my point here this morning, but MacArthur is right to observe that shame and, and uh, sexual sin and aberrant behavior and all kinds of things are wrapped into the nakedness and torment of that man. But just get a picture of that. And then notice his housing arrangement. Verse 27, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. So the demons have driven this man away from his home in the city. And he did have a home in the city. And they had driven him out of his home. And he had a new home now, is in the tombs, in the cemetery, was his home. This is right out of a horror movie. Am I right? We're not even there. We're not even a third of the way through it. It's right out of a horror movie. So there's a man naked and living in the tombs. Of course, for the Jewish individual, presence in the graveyard would bring massive uncleanness. But most importantly, I think for Luke's purpose, he wants us to see this. He wasn't at home. He says it in the Greek text. He wasn't at home. But strong contrast, his home was made among the tombs, and this man was alone. He was alone, isolated. He's not at home. His home was among the tombs. Well, the people of the town knew about him, and it looks like he was particularly dangerous and disturbing and quite a nuisance, as the parallel passage would say, that he would wander about screaming and cutting himself. And so look at what the people tried to do to contain him and to protect the city and its people from him. So notice, as we're looking at this desperate plight, notice the binding of this man. Verse 29 again, For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds. So it seemed like this uh, demon possession came in waves. It was a bit cyclic. And when, when the demons came, um, uh, they, he would come and he would get extremely powerful and strong and very dangerous. And of course, the city people had their little councils, their little powwows, their little city meetings. And you know, okay, you bring the pitchfork, you bring the shotgun, you bring the ropes, you bring the shackles, you bring the chains. Okay, who's leading this? Bill? 
I'm not doing it. Okay, we're going to go out together, right? We're going, aren't we? And so they go out with their pitchforks and their torches into the night, into the tombs, and it takes the whole group to hold him down and to bind him in chains and to shackles. And then the poor sap who drew the short straw that month would have to guard him. Can you imagine if that was your job? Okay, you're out there, I'm guarding, everyone else is left, okay, I'm guarding this guy. And he would break the chains. And the guard would, after a good beat down, I would guess, would flee back into the city. But the man would be pushed out into the wilderness by the horde of demons. For, notice his subjecting to the demonic power. Verse 29 again, And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so this man was completely subjected to the control of the darkness. He was driven into the wilderness. If the tombs weren't isolated enough, he was driven into the wilderness, which has all kinds of theological implications that we can't unpack maybe fully today. He was driven into the wilderness, naked and alone, further from civilization, further from people, further from a place he once called home. This was the man that Jesus met on the beach. Man, Jesus didn't have a halo, and he wasn't a wimp. He was a stonemason. He was not afraid. When the demonic man went into attack mode on that beach, Jesus did not hop back in the boat and run away. He didn't flee into the city. Jesus didn't bind him. He didn't have Peter. Peter probably grabbed the chains and we don't know. Something Peter would do. No. Jesus didn't bind him. He didn't run from him. Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus spoke. Look at verse 29. This is what Jesus did. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. So he, he had commanded him to come out. It was a bit of a battle. It was a bit of a war. And so Jesus then also asked this man a question. This man had lost his human identity. He was completely under the thumb of the demonic horde. He was gone. He was not who he once was. And I think Jesus gets right at the heart of the most important issue of the darkness, and that is his identity, and he gets right at it by asking a question, what is your name? That's if he's trying to stir up whatever's left of this man's humanity. What is your name? Now, this gets creepier. Jesus asked him, what is your name? This is verse 30, and he said, and I, his voice wasn't high-pitched and squeaky. You just know it. You just know it. 
legion. For, why? For many demons had entered him. So it was a certain single demon, for there are ranks in the demon hordes, who represented a large number of demons in this man that was speaking. And this demonic darkness had taken over the identity of man so that he had lost not only his home, but his name. Perhaps Jesus was trying to wake him up. I'm not certain about it, but it does certainly tell us about the depth of the darkness of this man. The name Legion. For the name Legion is a military term of a, of a unit made up of thousands of soldiers. A Roman legion, as one scholar notes, consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers, as well as 120 horsemen and technical personnel. So one scholar said, well, quotes, to the Jewish mind, legion, listen, that word itself brought an image of great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength, end quotes. In a parallel passage in Mark chapter 5, and there's also a passage in, in Matthew as well, the text is clear that, that around 2,000 pigs were, were in that destroyed herd. 2,000. So we can't know for sure, but it's likely this man was possessed by thousands of demons, at least 2,000 demons. You thought Mary Magdalene had it bad at seven? Legion. For they were many. Can you imagine the horror of being possessed by, a thou by thousands of demons? Now, if you have a thousand questions about demon possession, go listen to the first sermon we preached uh, when Jesus confronted a demon in, in a, la a couple chapters before, we can't get sidetracked on those things right now, but let's just keep pressing into what Luke has in mind, and hopefully some of our questions will be answered along the way. This man was in full humiliation, tortured and ashamed in his nakedness. This man was in full isolation, away from his home, driven into the wilderness. This man was in full subjection, his muscles controlled by demons in supernatural power, his voice controlled by the demon who controlled the horde inside of him, his mind controlled by this means. This man had lost his identity. He had a different name. And in so many ways, I think, I think in, in a sort of typological connection, he stands as, and reminds me a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar of old, a beast for seven years driven out. The legion of demons had made this man less than a man. Now listen, more of an animal. And that is the destructive plan of the darkness. It is this. Listen very carefully. The destructive plan of the darkness is to undo the image of God in man. To animalize us. Yes, Demons typically do not want to show themselves and can be quite conventional and masquerade as angels of light and are very manipulative and all of that. But at the end of the, 
of the day, I think many theologians are correct that this passage, the desperate plight of the demon-possessed is dehumanization. Dehumanization. It is the goal of the darkness. Whenever the darkness impacts human beings, whether by possession, which I think is relatively rare today, especially in this country, or by influence, it is to eradicate, to distort, to destroy the image of God in man. Because the demons, why? The demons and the devil hate the plan of God. They hate God, they hate the plan of God, and they hate his plan of recreation in the image of Christ. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a dehumanization that takes away male and female. There is a dehumanization that leads to isolation. There's a dehumanization that rips its clothing off. There is a dehumanization that is associated with sensuality and violence and sexual sin. Tertullian of old, the theologian who's from years and years ago, he was right, quotes, the glory of God is a man fully alive, end quotes. And the demonic darkness, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and their unified attack on mankind is directed upon the glory of God. And I want to tell you, he wants to take away the glory of God. He doesn't want us to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to be transformed into his image. He is dehumanizing mankind and means for our destruction. I want you to, to think about your own life. Again, demonic possession is rare in this country, and I don't think true believers can be possessed by demons. You can see the previous sermon for that. But I can tell you, in our country, where the darkness is alive and well, it masquerades as light. And I get it, the darkness does not want to expose itself. Because you're not Jesus, the God-man. The darkness will try not to expose itself. But the demonic plan is always the same and for all centuries the demonic plan is to undermine the image of God and man and to enslave him in sensuality, to enslave him in violence. Think of, think of the, what was all before the Noahic flood, sensuality and violence. To degrade man, to elevate animals above mankind to make man an animal. The whole doctrine of evolution is all a part of the demonic darkness and it is in line with Satan's plan. And so, and so when we succumb to an attitude, a habit, as Kent Hughes says, I like it, an attitude, a habit, an addiction, a sexual practice, a mental preoccupation, whether it's pornography, homosexuality, violence, isolation, it is a work of demonic darkness that is alive in a well trying to reverse the image of God in man and undo the work of the Spirit. And he's so proud He's a roaring lion, even seeking Christians to devour. J.C. Ryle is right. 
The possession of men's bodies may be comparatively rare, but many, unhappily, are the cases in which the devil appears completely to possess men's souls. How desperate is the plight of those plunged in the darkness? What is this destructive plan? It is not just to make them dirty and destitute and deserted, but it is to deface the image of God and man until you die. Until you die in your sins. The ultimate goal is your death. Let's see that. It's very clear in the passage in verse 31. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Verse 32, now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned, bent on death and destruction. 2,000 pigs killed and drowned in the sea. Distorting the image of God. The demonic plan is to distort the image of God and to lead you into eternal death. The darkness intends to destroy you. John makes it clear that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, says this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He took upon flesh in the womb of Mary to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared on that beach that day to destroy the works of the devil. He entered into your darkness. He came after you to destroy the works of the devil on your behalf. To bring you out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. This is war with legions. This is an act of war. Jesus is at war with the darkness. And I want you to see he's significantly outnumbered. Will Jesus run? Much is at stake as to what happens next in our passage. Which leads us to our third vantage point in the text. The doctrinal, listen, this is harder to, we'll get it, we'll get it. The doctrinal panic of the demonic darkness. The doctrinal panic of the demonic darkness. Look at verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out, and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So this man had never met Jesus, but the demons had. They, they knew who Jesus was. They knew who he was in his person, and they knew what his work would be. And they are in abject terror before the Son of the Most High God. And they fall before him not in worship, but in cringing terror. And they say with a loud voice, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, I beg you, do not torment me. 
When demons know who Jesus is, they have, I dare say, a more accurate understanding of the person of Jesus and the, and the work that he came to do than many believers do today. For James says the demons believe and tremble. They don't have saving faith. There is no love. But I think they understand that they have met their match in Jesus from Nazareth. And calling Jesus the Son of the Most High God takes us back as you look at how the book of Luke works. Hold your finger right here, and I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 quickly. And I want you to look at another spiritual being who is speaking there, and he's speaking to Mary, not an angel of darkness this time, but an angel of light is speaking to Mary about Jesus in verse 32. And he said, he will be what? Great. And of course, Jesus says, go tell everybody the great, same word, great things that I have done. I think there's many connections with this passage. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. But then the angel goes on. He just doesn't know the person of Christ. He knows the work of Christ. And he goes on and he says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Then the angel knows who Jesus is, and the, and, and, and the angel knows that this Christ will win in this history over the darkness. He will reign and that forever and the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. And the promises made to Moses will be fulfilled. And the promises of the new covenant made to Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel will be fulfilled for nothing will be impossible with God. And I want you to hold on to this. Not only angel knows the person and the work. Watch this. The demons know the person and the work and the plan and prophecies of God. For notice what they say. Flip back now to our passage. Back into our passage. In verse 31, they know it full well. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. The demons are absolutely terrified that they're going to be commanded by the Son of the Most High God to exit this man and to exit into the abyss. I think that place called the abyss is distinct from the final hell, the final lake of fire. The word abyss is a term of confinement in the Bible. In one systematic theology, the abyss is defined as, quotes, a prison for fallen angels that halts them from having any access to or influence on the earth, end quotes. So right here, I don't think they're afraid at this point of burning in the lake of fire in that final torment. They're afraid of the abyss that means total isolation, total confinement, and total cessation from their joyful activities and influence upon the earth. Just send us into the pigs. Look, we don't need the man. We know how much you love the men. We'll take the pigs. We just don't want to be confined. Let us work. Don't let us go into the abyss. Now, in Revelation chapter 9, the, there are demonic creatures in Revelation chapter 9 that are released from the abyss to begin to inflict damage on the peoples of the earth. And then we come to the abyss again, the Greek term for it, in 
Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where the abyss is that pit into which Satan is thrown after the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's thrown into this pit, and the text says that the abyss will be shut and sealed over him so that Satan cannot deceive the nations for a thousand years. And after that time, Satan will be released from the abyss to deceive the nations once more. And immediately after that, which doesn't go well for him, he will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire forever in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And the demons are begging Jesus to, not to command them to go into the abyss, but instead permit us to go into the herd of swine. Verse 32, now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. Don't send us to a place where we are locked up and can't do anything. I know you're not going to let us go into a man anymore, but we are fine with pigs. Do not confine us before the time. Now, maybe... Don't get sidetracked. I didn't know that animals can be possessed. Let's talk about that. I didn't. What happened to the demons after they went into the sea? Were they, was the sea then a metaphor of the abyss? Or why would Jesus allow the death of all those pigs? Or let's not go there. I want you to see what the Holy Spirit wants us to see and, and grab a hold of this. And I think this is what's wonderful, what one expositor said named Davis, I think he hit it. Write this down. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. The demons know that this is Yahweh in the flesh, the very son of the most high God. But you know what else they know? They know that Jesus will win in history. They're terrified of it. They're not questioning it. They know, without a doubt, that they will be cast into that place and cut off in the lake of fire. They know that they will lose. They know that he has been given and will be given a kingdom. You will have final authority and Jesus Christ will win in history. Darkness will be defeated. They know. They know the promises and prophecies of God are yes and amen. And they are terrified of it. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. just wonder why we would associate as believers with the darkness that is passing away. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Well, the hope of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. He stood there on the beach that day and the demons were terrified. And so that leads us then finally to the final vantage point this morning. This is the hope of the church the divine power over the demonic darkness. Divine power over demonic darkness. So it's simple, but verse 33 says, and the demons came out of the man. 
and entered the swine. So when Jesus commanded them to come out, they must obey Jesus. And, it, and they all came out. The demons, plural, came out of the man, and they went into the swine. And the legion of demons on the beach, panicking, are already negotiating with the Christ. Negotiating a plan B. And they need permission. Can we get your permission to go here, to do this, to do that? They need, they're on a leash. The demons and the devil are on the leash of the sovereign God. And they need permission. And Jesus gives them permission to enter those swine. The compassionate Christ, he was with us in the storm. And he went into the darkness, coming after Gentile sinners like us. This compassionate Christ has all authority and all power over the devil, and he is the only one who can dispel the darkness. And when he acts on your behalf, the, the rescue that he brings is real, it's not debatable, it's discoverable, it's manifest. I mean, the one locked was naked, isolated, bound, overpowered, driven, wandering, defaced in the image of God, heading towards physical and eternal death. The metaphor for us without Christ. But on the other hand, look at this great salvation. Look at verse 35. Look at what Jesus did. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The scripture says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus will bind the strong man. He is stronger than the strong man. He is able to cage the roaring lion. Jesus Christ is the only one, the God-man, is the only one in this world, whether it's Vienna, south of Innsbruck, Sierra Leone, Malawi, Bolivia, wherever it is, there is one Savior who is the God-man, who can penetrate the darkness of this world, who is willing to send his church and goes after us through his church into the darkness. He's willing and he will seek after his children. He will come find them. He will break through the darkness. And he will save us. He's come after us. He sought us out. We're... We can't seek him out. We are completely lost. And he comes after us. And he, he casts out the darkness. And he enters in and his, the spirit of life, his own spirit comes within and softens our heart and removes the darkness of our sin and our shame. And he clothes us in the perfect shining righteousness of his own his own righteousness. And he transforms us from the inside out. 
Christ is the hope of the church. And it's not a partial deliverance. It is observable deliverance. It is a full deliverance that he has wrought over the darkness. And so we are left. Are we not? Clothed in the righteousness of Christ? In our right mind, finally? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, loving him? Sometimes disappointed, oh Jesus, I want to be with you. No, you got to stay here. But we just want to be with him. What a transformation. What a deliverance. What a salvation. But never forget the cost of it. Never forget the cost. This is, a, this is an interesting connection here, but I think it's right and I think it's real. There's unclean pigs that would die instead of this man being destroyed by the demons. And you have to understand the cost of our redemption from that darkness would be that the precious son of the most high God would hang naked upon the cross of Calvary. And that the, the, the forces of darkness in that day would be unleashed in their pride to think that they could undo the plan of God upon the cross of Calvary. And their weapon was sin. It was my sin. It was your sin. And God himself poured out upon his own son the full wrath, his own wrath upon his son for six hours and darkness settled upon the land. And Jesus was alone and he was naked. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the demons, I think maybe even these demons, thought that perhaps they had won. Perhaps they just tried to put out of their mind the promise of Genesis 3.15. That you shall bruise him on the heel, but he shall crush the head of the serpent. And so Jesus, the righteous one, crushed the head of the king of the dark one and said, it is finished. And at that time, it was not yet the time for the demons to be thrown into the abyss, but they know their end, and we know the prophecies, for the terror of the demons is the hope of the church. So I think it's appropriate to be reminded that we can be like the man named Legion spiritually. I think we can relate to him. I think we can rejoice in our great salvation and we can not only believe that we have been rescued, but the, the full rescue is coming. And we can believe, Romans 6, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not might crush, he will crush. For our sin has been removed. We have the full righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are naked and ashamed no longer. For the weapon of the darkness has been removed. Our sin, it's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's been disarmed. 
As Colossians 2.14 says, he's canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. So may we sit at the feet of Jesus and may we go back into the city and proclaim what great things the Lord has done for us. Let us pray.